So as you will see, we are beginning a new short, I promise short, if you've been around here for the last few months, you don't believe me when I say that, but it's been calendared, it's been scheduled, it's only three weeks. We're going to look at three different psalms over the next three weeks, and here's why. As the elders and I have continued to meet with you all during the week, we've been increasingly impressed by the Lord with certain pastoral needs that seem to be shared and collective among the congregation. And we want to bring some comfort in God's word to these very needs, not just in our words, but in his word. And so we're looking to use Psalms to address some of the very real things that you and I are wrestling through, including what do we do about suffering? What does God say to our anxiety? What does God say and encourage us to say to him in the midst of our sin struggles? So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. And we're using the Psalms because we want you to hear God's word, not just our words. And the Psalms were ancient Israel's hymn book, but they also give words of timeless and relevant import to us in 2019, helping us to pray and speak to God and to one another about how do we look to God amidst suffering, amidst real anxiety and fears, and how do we go to Him amidst our sin struggles. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If you don't own one, feel free to use one of the Bibles under your chair. Uh, This Psalm 34 is on page 463. should be around 463. I want you to keep your Bibles open as we move through Psalm 34. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for this time of reading and hearing from God's Word, um, presenting it together. And as much as anything, while I'm praying, I invite you to be praying for me so that what I would be saying would only give glory to Jesus in all that we consider over this next time together. So let me pray for us collectively. Father, it's a great privilege to have heard your words spoken, your words sung by your people in this stadium of praise to you alone. And yet, Lord, I know that so many of us right now have brought many things into this room, many distractions, many joys, many sorrows, many struggles, much suffering. And so, Lord, I ask that you would fix our eyes, that you would calm our hearts and our heads, that we would put away the thoughts that have come before or might go after this time, and that your word would reign the supreme over all of us. Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that I would say, think, and do only what would make most of your son Jesus. I pray for the people here listening, that they would be enlivened in their hearts to see you, to taste that you are indeed good, even when things are not good. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be teaching us the things you want us to learn today. I pray that your word would stick so deeply in our hearts. I pray that your glory would be our concern and joy in your son Jesus would be our chief pursuit in all of life. And we can't do this on our own. And so so we ask that you would do this and much more than we could ask or imagine over this and all the remainder of our time together as a church. And we ask these things in your son's powerful name. Amen. Amen. You guys ever wonder how God can be good when things seem bad? If you are, you're human. (laughs) 
If you've ever asked the question, how can God be good when things seem bad? When your spouse walks out. When you're sitting in the lonely living room after a terrible argument. When you're sitting in the hospital room after hearing the dreaded diagnosis. Or you find out from a loved one that they just had a miscarriage. Or you yourself have lost a loved one recently. How in the world can we see and understand that God is good even when things are bad? What are we to do with all of this? That's what Psalm 34 is getting at this morning. See, Psalm 34 was penned by a man of God after God's own heart, David himself, who knew very real suffering in this very real world. And Psalm 34 actually recounts a historical experience, something he went through in his own life. And it points back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'll bring you up to speed. Over uh, the course of 1 Samuel 21, we hear this crazy turn of events. The once revered and mighty King David is on the run for his life. He's being pursued at this point by his chief enemy, arch-rival, Saul and his little band of allies. And so David is on the run for his life. And if, for whatever reason, he decides to run not to God's presence first, but he runs to an enemy city called Gath. And Gath was actually the hometown of Goliath. You're probably starting to connect the dots, being like, that's a terrible idea. Yes, that is the same Goliath that David had not so long before this killed with a slingshot. And to make matters worse, David is now carrying Goliath's sword. So let me paint the picture in real time for us. This would be like a Cubs fan carrying the World Series trophy, wearing a blue jersey, sitting behind the catcher on a Sunday matinee game at Bush Stadium. Hardly the place to expect a warm welcome. And so King David, carrying Goliath's sword into Goliath's own hometown, comes before the foreign king Achish and is afraid for his life. So what does he do? He literally acts crazy. He starts scratching doorposts, letting saliva run. If you don't believe me, 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, wild stuff. Letting saliva run down his beard. The man is like a rabid animal. And here's why. In great suffering, all that he knows to do is self-preservation. You guys ever felt that way in suffering? Oh, I don't know what it looks like to run to God, so I'm going to try to do whatever I can to preserve myself. Whether it's false stoicism, like put on the smiling face, even though you don't feel anything good inside. Or the hysteria, where you just feel overwhelmed and it's definitely not fight, so it's flight all day long. Well, back to David. He convinces King Achish that indeed he is no threat. So King Achish kicks him out of town instead of killing him, and this little game, this deadly little game of catch me if you can, continues. David, under constant fear, a lot of enemy suffering, now writes to celebrate the God who delivers from suffering. See, Psalm 34 is penned after all of this has a happy conclusion. Not all of our suffering does. But David writes to his younger self and to us with words of counsel. How should you walk through suffering? How do you look to the God who is always good even when things are really bad? 
Well, that's the big idea that he's unpacking for you and I today. And the answer to that question is found primarily in verse 8. The big idea that David has for you and I today is taste and see God is good even when things are bad. Taste and see that God is good even when things are bad. But Jameson, how in the world do you expect me to believe you? Well, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe God in his word. And David highlights what it looks like to taste and see that God is good even when things are bad. And here's what he says. I want us to rejoice in God's perfection. I want us to rest in God's presence. And I want us to remember God's promises. How do we see God is good in the midst of bad things? Rejoice in God's perfection. Rest in God's presence and remember God's promises. Let's begin by rejoicing in God's perfection as we look at verse 1 to 7 together. Please listen aloud as I read verse 1 to 7. The words of David. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David wants us to boast in to cheer of the eternal victor, the team that never has a down season. I know in the beginning of the fall, many of us are getting on the bandwagon for a sports team, whether it's NFL or whether it's Southern Illinois football. Bless your heart if it's Southern Illinois football. But nonetheless, all of our favorite teams, they have down seasons. David invites us into this stadium of praise that is the church, reminding us that our eternal victor God has no down season. He is always on the throne. He is always active and reigning. And that's why he commends us to celebrate and praise him even before we do anything else. Even while we're suffering. Praise God first. Listen to these powerful words that he commends to us. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. There is no off-season to praising God. There is no off-season to praising God even when things are hard. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. This is a man who just walked out of deep suffering. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble, those who are lowly, hear and be glad. See, every Sunday I know that some of us, myself included, walk into this room needing nothing but good news. We come in here so weary, so tired, so worn out, that you can hardly imagine singing a song of praise. And yet, when we get together as God's collective people in this stadium of praise to the living God, our eyes are taken off ourselves, aren't they? happens for me every single weekend. I'm shocked at the weight of God's glory in the best of ways. When I hear your voices surrounding us together, Something happens to our hearts, even when we're suffering, as we praise God together. That's why David commends that we do it in verse 3. Listen to the communal nature of verse 3. 
Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What is David telling us? Magnify the Lord. It's where we set his greatness before our eyes by singing of his worth. Let us exalt his name. Let us say, God, you are indeed holy. You are perfect. You are infinite. You are our creator. And something powerful happens, not just when you're saying it, but when you're surrounded by the presence of God's people saying it. It's as if you enter into that stadium like the SIU basketball stadium used to be like 10 years ago. And every game was a a resounding victory and people were praising together. Every Sunday we get together and we praise the living, the risen, the eternal King Jesus. We have reason to set our eyes, not on ourselves, we can be honest about our suffering, but to set it on, our eyes on the throne, to magnify his name together, to exalt his, magnify the Lord, exalt his name together. And not only do we rejoice in his perfect identity, we remember his perfect activity. Verse 4 to 7. Look back at the text. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. Do you hear the humility in that? This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Do you hear the sovereignty in that? And and saved him out of all his troubles. What was David able to do in his suffering? What could he do? Not much. Listen again to what he said in verse 4, 6. I sought the Lord. I cried to the Lord. That's words of desperation, of tears, of sorrow, of weakness looking to power. And he looked in the right place. He didn't look to himself. He looked to the Lord. And here's why. Listen again to what the Lord did. He answered and delivered, verse 4. He heard and he saved, verse 6. Answered and delivered. He heard and he saved. Guys, God is active, not absent, in the midst of your suffering. God is active, not absent. One more time. God is active, not absent, in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of our suffering. He heard, he saved, he delivered, and now he surrounds. Verse 7, look at this. The angel of the Lord encamps, encamps, literally surrounds like a fence that's blocked him in with just God's presence. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Active not absent, saves and surrounds. God is present and powerful. We rejoice in the perfection of God when we look to him in his word. We see that he is the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, is the same God who desires to descend and dwell with his people in the person and work of Christ Jesus. He is transcendent and imminent. Is this the God you're crying to? Is this the guy? Is there anyone else we should go to? Who hears? Who saves? Who delivers? None other but then our perfect God. Even when suffering is so real, our God is much more powerful. And so we rejoice in His 
perfections. So how do I do that this week? How do I rejoice in God's perfections? Well, I'm going to invite you to do two things. Like David did, recount his faithfulness. All of us have evidences of God's grace in our life. We can all look back at some point in our life and say, the only explanation that any good came out of that is that God was at work. Most of us can have a real long book (laughs) of what he's done. What difference does it make in the midst of your suffering to recount his faithfulness? It usually takes your eyes back to where they should be, on God himself. So you recount his faithfulness first, and then you proclaim his greatness. Proclaim his greatness. There is never a vain attempt in praising and magnifying God, just in saying, I know, God, you are good, you are great, you are gracious, you are glorious, and I am not. You are God. I am not. Something happens in the heart when that, when that is said to yourself and to others. This week, in the midst of your suffering, when you open up Psalm 34 to speak with God in prayer, recount his faithfulness, proclaim his greatness, all to rejoice in his perfection. First, we rejoice in God's perfection. Second, we rest in God's presence. Look with me at verse 8 to 10. We rest in God's presence. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You guys ever been homesick? Ever been homesick? Whether you just went off to school, whether you served in the military, whether you took a new job in a new place. What did you miss most about home when you were gone? The people? The places? I bet at some point you got hungry for the home cooking. The favorite restaurants. Lo and behold, you grew up in southern Illinois your whole life and you had to go visit someone in New York, San Francisco, L.A. They're trying to get you to eat pan-seared Brussels sprouts instead of pork chops. What in the world? What in the world? All I want is Quattro's pizza with a lot of meat on it. (laughs) And the amens resound. See, when we are away from home, we naturally get these hunger pains, these cravings for being back in the place that's most comfortable. Usually the people and the places, yes, but oftentimes you go to the big cities and all I want is the casseroles, the pork steaks, and the quattros to make me feel back at home. We have this hunger pain that goes deeper than our earthly hungering, though. We have a spiritual hungering deep inside each and every one of us that makes us hunger for the true home we are made for, makes us hunger for the feast of the bread of life that we would taste, that we would see that God is good, not just know about him. It's one thing to read your favorite menu. It's another thing to have the dish brought to you and get to savor it, right? David is telling us, don't just read the menu. Taste the dish. Eat the bread of life. Enjoy the God in whom is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. He wants us to taste and see spiritual sight, spiritual savoring, 
not just head knowledge. He wants the head to overflow into the heart. He wants you to resound in praise. He wants you to be so thankful and joyful in the Lord because that's what you need when there is no joy in your suffering. You need to be joyful in the Lord. How do we do that? How did David do it? He let his doctrine fuel doxology. Here's what I mean. The truth about God fostered praise to God. Doctrine becoming doxology, truth becoming praise. And all it was is recounting the true gospel day after day. God, man, Christ responds. Consider how great the menu sounds and then savor how good the dish tastes as you realize this is applied to you in Christ Jesus. Who is God? Well, God is the holy, the infinite, the perfect creator. What did God do? He made us in his image to know, love, and worship him. He made us in his image, not by accident. He made us per his desire, not by necessity. Who are we? Well, yes, made in his image. But we have tried to taste and seek out goodness in all the things that are other than God. Even his gifts and our desires. We have fallen short. We've missed the mark of knowing, loving, and worshiping him, worshiping him like he's commanded of us. And the penalty for this is sin. Well, that is sin. And the penalty is death and separation for our sin. We should be cast off from the holy God in whose presence we are now not worthy to be in because we are unholy. What does God do? He sees our need and he provides for it. See, when the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. God loves us so much and desires to be with his people so much that he would give his perfect son Jesus to live the life that you never, you never could. Sinless. And then his perfect son went to the cross and died the death that your sin and my sin deserves. And then after three days, that perfect and powerful son was risen from the dead to obliterate anything that would ever get in the way of us returning home to God's presence. God sends his very son to be our redeemer to reconcile us. And it came through great suffering. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The point of Jesus' suffering was so that you could come home to God, your eternal presence, the one-way ticket out of New York and back to Carterville. As if one-way tickets to Carterville existed. You've got to go through Marion. Nonetheless... Christ has suffered to bring you home to God. Your Redeemer has come to reconcile, and He wanted this to happen so badly that He was willing to give of His life for you. Or would you taste and see that? Would you run to Him as your refuge? See, that's what David wants you to do. When this becomes joy in the midst of your suffering, you will run to Him as your refuge. You won't look anywhere else. Look again at verse 8 with me. David continues on. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, in God. 
Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God is the refuge to those who run to him. He is the protection from God's wrath, and he is the protection amidst the storms of this life. And when suffering hits you and I, we will run. (laughs) We will run somewhere. We will run to something when we suffer. The question is, who or what are you running to? David ran in the wrong places, didn't he? A foreign city, a foreign king, and crazy antics. That's what you and I, where do we run in our suffering? Sometimes hysteria, overwhelmed, my world's going to end. Sometimes false stoicism, well, I'm going to smile and put on my best face no matter what I'm feeling inside and everything's just happy clappy despite the fact that my closest friend died yesterday. No, you don't have to do that. With real suffering, you can be honest. Where else might you be tempted to run in your suffering? Is it a website? Is it those drinks, those pills? Is it binging on Netflix? Scrolling the phone? I know what that looks like. Where you're just trying to fill your mind with enough distractions, enough spiritual placebos, that the real pain in front of you doesn't have to be addressed. Don't run there. Don't look for refuge and rest and things that can't offer it. Where can we find true refuge? Only in him. Only in the God who gave his son to die for us. The God who has come so near to us to reconcile us to him. Don't run anywhere else. He is the God in whose presence we're meant to find refuge. So how do we do that? How do we rest in him? First and foremost, I think verse 8 encourages us to confess our false refuges. Confess and identify our false refuges. God, I know I'm made to find rest in you, but when I'm in that hospital room, when when I'm in that lonely living room after the argument, I run to fill in the blank for my refuge. I run to fill in the blank for the rest and the peace and the joy that only will be found in you, but for some crazy reason, like scratching the doorpost, letting saliva run down my beard, craziness, I think I'm going to find it there. Please forgive me. That's not what I'm made for. And then fear the Lord. Remember what verse 8 and 9 and 10 just said. We have no lack when we go to Him. We can say, I am a sinner saved by grace. I have nothing apart from Jesus. And so I throw myself upon Him because I see His love for me at the cross. And then I see His power for me when that cross, when that tomb was emptied. Jesus got up from the dead. And so I can rest in him who offers me eternal life. Where do you run in the midst of your suffering? Don't run anywhere else than God alone. Rejoice in God's perfection. Rest in God's presence. And finally, remember God's promises. Verse 15 to 22 with me. The eyes of the Lord, these promises are astounding. If you're reading along in your Bibles, a.k.a. I hope you are, uh, underline, highlight, exclamation, whatever you got to do. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, do that as well, because the next person that reads Psalm 34 will be better off for it if you do. These are important promises to store up. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. 
The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That promise alone is worth the next week of suffering to endure. Many are the afflictions of the, are, of the, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Guys, these are the promises that we bank eternity on. These are the promises, the only promises that can speak eternal hope. And yet you and I know that promises only carry as much weight as the power of the one making the promise. I had this pictured quite vividly for me recently. Our family went out to Shake Shack. I heard it was like, you got to have the steak burgers. Um, So we went, we ordered, and then we waited, and then we waited, and then we waited some more. Steak and Shake, not Steak Shack. Thank you, Steak and Shake. Everyone's like, crazy antics. I'm the foreigner, you're the locals, forgive me. Steak and shake, steak and shake. We went, and the steak burgers, yes, we had the steak burgers and the milkshakes, yes, yes, yes. But we waited for what seemed like an eternity, and I was expecting fast food. And I had my three-year-old with me, and my three-year-old can't wait until Jesus returns for his hamburger. And so after a while, I went to the customer associate at the desk, and I was like, Yo, my kid's hungry, and if you haven't noticed, your restaurant is emptying out the longer our order is delayed. Can I speak to someone about this? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go talk to the manager in the back. And I was like, okay, now we're talking to the one who can promise with power. And the store manager took care of it and brought the food out, and chaos was ended. Normalcy was restored, customers returned, and they were back up and running. Nonetheless... I needed to talk to the person who had power for the promise to mean anything. The girl at the cash register, she could promise me all day it's going to be out in a minute. I'm not going to believe her for a second. In the midst of my suffering, I need God's words. I need God's promises to to overflow my head and my heart. And it's because he is the one who is eternally on the throne that I will listen when he speaks. So when when we go through these promises... I invite you to listen, and listen well, and then store these up in your heart so you can speak them to yourself, as well as speak them to others in this church when they're suffering. Listen to verse 15 first. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The eyes of the Lord see. The ears of the Lord hear you. This is just like Jesus in John chapter 10. Lazarus had just died. He shows up on the scene with Martha and Mary. He hears them. He sees them crying. Jesus listens and he cries with them. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead, a preview of his coming power when he himself will be raised from the dead. It's no wonder that Peter will go on to tell us in 1 Peter 5, 
Cast your cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He hears, He sees, but are you listening? Are you listening to this God? Listen to this promise in verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. See, near is a word that means more than just in the general vicinity or hanging out in the parking lot. Near is, was used in Ruth chapter 2.20 to describe the relationship of the next of kin providing protection when things are really hard. Like your brother or sister coming alongside you when your house burned down or your spouse died. You want the closest one to you to provide the most meaningful comfort. That's what David says God does. God is high and holy over everything, but near and dear saves the crushed in spirit and the brokenhearted. God is described by Paul later as the father, not just the friend, the boss, the CEO, the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in every affliction. Do you hear that promise? Are you listening to the God who sees and hears? The God who desires to dwell with his people. He's this near. Remember the MO of God has always been to dwell with his people. The garden. He made creation and dwelled with them. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple sets up a means to be present with his people. John chapter 1. The word become flesh. Jesus tabernacles, temples amongst his people come to be near to us. And that King Jesus who now has ascended to the throne will return to dwell with his people forever. The ultimate promise of eternity is God dwelling with his people. Listen to the nearness of the God who saves and hears in Revelation chapter 21. Preview, this is how the story ends. Get your hopes up. This is the good news we have in Jesus. Listen to Revelation 21 to to 3 and 4. Behold, pay attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening when you're in the hospital room? Are you listening when you get the diagnosis? Are you listening when you can't hardly fathom another day of insomnia or joint pain or the loneliness of divorce or the loneliness of widowhood? Are you listening to what the God who reigns forever promises to his people? And remember, his promises have power because listen to what happens in verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What's this about? I don't have any broken bones today. Well, even if you do, this is good news because Psalm 34 verse 20 points to Jesus. Just like all of Scripture points to Jesus. Psalm 34 verse 20 is fulfilled when we get to John chapter 19 verse 33 to 36. As was customary... When Roman prisoners were crucified on a cross, they would have their legs broken before being taken down from the cross. Jesus died so quickly on the cross that his legs weren't broken. Seems like a small detail, 
But the point of Psalm 34, verse 20, is to show that every single promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Every single promise that God makes to his people is going to come to fruition because Jesus Christ lived in our place, died in our place, and was risen from the dead. And every single detail has been taken care of by our God. Not just this promise, but the greater promise in verse 22. Listen to verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Guys, the Lord redeems. He buys back. That's the good news you and I need. He buys back from sin, Satan, death. That is the hope that you need amidst your suffering. And remember how high of a cost Jesus was willing to pay to redeem you and I, to buy us back. Isaiah 53 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds you are healed. Jesus had real wounds. He was really pierced, really crushed to pay your penalty, to redeem you, to buy you back. And it looked like a tragedy up there on the cross, but it became a victory. The tragedy became a victory after three days. God redeemed the worst suffering of all time, the most unjust, inhumane death of all time. Jesus on the cross was redeemed. Those those spikes in his hands and his feet, that bloody crown, that open gashes on his back from the whips, you know what that gave way to after three days? New life. Restoration. Resurrection. Guys, that stone was rolled back. The darkness of the tomb was emptied. The light of life walked into the world. Death was put to death. Jesus rose from the dead. Death was put to death. I have no greater words for you today than the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He has put death to death. And the good news for you and I is that if you are in Christ Jesus, death will not have the last word in your life. Death is not the end, even amidst your suffering. Because Jesus got up from the dead, every single one of you who are in Jesus will get up from the dead. My gosh. Are you listening? Are you storing this up in your heart? Because someday suffering will hit. Someday suffering will hit. And when it hits, it hits hard. But Satan's not going to win. Death's not going to win. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. Take that into the hospital room. Take that into your loneliness. Take that into the doctor's office. Take that into the, to the workplace when the boss just keeps yelling at you. Take that into the, to the bedroom where you see the place that your spouse used to lay next to you. And all you have now is a tombstone. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. Are you listening? Are you believing? 
See, the good news of this promise, the good news of this gospel is only applicable, applicable to you if you have run to Christ Jesus as your Savior. See, he offers us such good news if you would believe in him, if you would repent, if you would turn from trying to be God and instead just trusting God. He has given you everything you need, more than you deserve, everything you could never earn. Would you run to him and believe in him and trust in him? I don't care if you've been here a thousand times or if you're just checking church out today. If he's calling you to respond, respond. When the God of the universe speaks, he wants us to trust. Would you believe and respond? And then if you have followed him as Savior, would you depend on him as Lord? See, the promise of Hebrews 4.15 and 16 says... We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Who's not in a time of need? If you're in Christ Jesus, would you run to the throne of grace and know that through faith in Christ Jesus, the one who suffered for you in your place, you're going to find mercy and grace in your time of need. Even when you don't know what it looks like. Even if you're in the midst of suffering that won't end until Christ returns, someday that suffering will end. And until it ends, Christ will be present with you. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the Christian spirit. Let's run to him. Let's taste and see that God is good even when things are bad. Rejoice in his perfection. Rest in his presence and remember his promises.